Welcome to Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla, where it's you who sets the conversation. Join us for the next hour as we take a fresh look at how we think about spirituality. That's what we're going to be doing today, looking at spirituality. In fact, probably one of the most core elements of Jewish spirituality as we head towards the holiday of Shavuos or Shavuot, the time that we commemorate the giving of the Torah. Welcome. It's great to be with you as it is on Thursday afternoons. You're, uh, we're going to be together till just before three o'clock. It's a conversation, as always, and the conversation has two directions. So I'm happy to share and I'd love you to share as well. Here are the means, the channels of connection that you could use. So there's the SMS line, 34519. Telegram 0618951019 gives you a little bit more flexibility than just an SMS. And as always, most of our conversation tends to take place on, you know where, on social media. So you can find either me or Chai FM on Twitter and on Facebook. I'm at Rabashish on Twitter. Chai FM is at Chai FM. And you can find us by name on Facebook. That's where these conversations go down. So tomorrow evening, we're going to head into a three-day spiritual marathon. It starts with the regular Shabbos, as it always does on a Friday night. And then we go straight into a double Yontav, two days of Yontav. And it's possibly, you could argue, one of the less popular Yontavs. Is that fair to say? Everybody gets very caught up in Pesach. Everybody enjoys the holiday of, let's say, Hanukkah. There's great attendance and participation on Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. This holiday, Shavuos, a little bit overlooked sometimes, which is tremendously ironic when you consider that this is the holiday that builds the bottom of the foundation of all the holidays. This is the giving of the Torah. If we did not have this one, how would we then have any of our other holidays? So it's incredibly important. has to be something that we have to really focus on. So if we're going to talk about spirituality, as we do on Thursdays, this has got to be, so to speak, the core of our spirituality. This is where it all begins. This is where it all starts, the time of the giving of the Torah. So for that reason, let's talk a little bit about the giving of the Torah. And I'm going to share with you a particular conversation that is recorded in the Talmud, as is often the case in the Talmud, it's not necessarily to be taken at face value. There are layers of depth behind this particular conversation. And it's exactly those layers that I'd like to just talk about and hear your thoughts. So let's start off with the story. I'll tell you the story as it is presented in the Talmud. Then I've got a few questions about the story. One specific question that's actually going to launch our conversation today. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. So the story goes like this. The Talmud tells us, that Moses climbs up onto the top of Mount Sinai. And when he does so, when he climbs up to the top of Mount Sinai, there's almost some kind of a wormhole, some kind of a portal, that by entering the space on the top of the mountain, Moses actually enters heaven itself. So you can imagine, you can imagine what's going on in heaven. I don't know exactly what systems they have there for intruders, but you can well, well imagine that uh, there's this human being in heaven and, and, and everybody wants to know what on earth is this human being doing there. Just before continuing, nice message here from Carol who says, I've always loved Shavuot after the complexities of Pesach. Yes, because, right, the holiday of Shavuot just feels like it's, ah, phew, breathing time. It's okay. <laughs> we can 
we can just enjoy ourselves, you know, start cleaning the whole house top to bottom. We don't have to go sit outside in a sukkah exposed to the elements. You can just eat cheesecake. It's really great. Unless, of course, you're staying up the whole night, as is traditional. Not everybody finds that one so easy. But still, Carol, I'm with you. I think that it's a wonderful holiday and we should embrace it. So thank you for that message. So here's the stories. The Talmud tells us that Moses climbs Mount Sinai, is then teleported through some kind of spiritual wormhole, lands up in heaven, and there's chaos. There's absolute chaos. All the angels are frantic back and forth. What's going on over here? How did he get in? I'm sure you've heard the story before. I'm sure many of you have heard the story before. How did this human being get into heaven? What's he doing here? More importantly then, why is he here? They want to know, well, how did he get here? Why is he here? What's going on? So God tells the angels he's here because he's going to be taking the Torah with him back down to earth where he lives together with the humans. He's going to take the Torah down to earth and he's going to present it to his, to his community. And the angels are flabbergasted. What do you mean? What do you mean? This, this is an incredible treasure that you have protected like Fort Knox level protection for all of these years, literally a few thousand years since the creation of the world. It's got the deepest secrets of life. It's got access to divine wisdom. It is brilliant in every sense of the word. And why, why would you give that to people? Why would you give that to those fickle, finite, unreliable human beings? We all know what's going to happen. You're going to give the Torah to them and they're going to butcher it. Rather say the angels, leave the Torah here with us in the heavens. And what happens next in the Talmud's account is fascinating because God is God. So it's already disturbing enough that the angels would challenge God's decision. The fact is that God doesn't even respond personally. That's fascinating. I mean, he, not that he has to respond. Not that God has to defend himself in front of the angels or any other beings for that matter. The fact that God says, I'm not going to respond. Moses, you respond is really fascinating. So there's a whole conversation. Moses says, I don't know if it's safe to do this because the angels are really intense. And if they don't like what I'm saying, they could literally obliterate me. And Hashem says, don't worry, I got this. I'll protect you. Go ahead and give them an answer. And he says to the angels, he says, look, if you read the Ten Commandments, which is obviously the first presentation of the Torah that's ever going to happen, you will see that none of it is relevant to you. It starts off, I'm the Lord your God who took you out of Egypt. Moses says, tell me something. Angels, whatever, Gabriel, Michael, whichever angels it is. Have you ever been to Egypt? Ever seen the pyramids? <laughs> ever been a slave? What's that? How could the Torah possibly be addressed to your reality? You, you don't, you've never experienced this. Not for you. Next thing, what does it say? Do not serve idols. Tell me something. Up here in heaven, is there a community down the road that's, that serves idols that they have to be told, hey, angels, don't go there, don't get involved? You know, it's not part of your reality. And so he goes one by one, resting on the Sabbath. You don't work. You don't need to rest. Honoring parents. You don't have parents. All these other sins that are associated either with an evil inclination or the natural tendency of humans to be envious of each other, it, none of it is relevant to you. And it's this brilliant legal disposition, really, that uh, deposition that, that Moshe puts forward. And he says, you guys, you're, you're off the mark over here. Just reading the book tells you absolutely clearly that it's not for you. And the angels step back 
and they say, okay, you're right. It's not, it's not for you. It's not for us. It's not for us. Torah is not for us. You win. The Torah goes down to earth. Now, of course, it sounds like a brilliant engagement and a legal wrangle and so on and so forth. At the end of the day, though, there's a big question over here. The big question is, maybe the angels had a point. Maybe the angels had a point. They were worried. What were they worried about? This beautiful, divine, pristine treasure called the Torah, which is supposed to be treated with the utmost respect, which contains within it divine, infinite wisdom. Now, we know how people are. And we know what people can do. And we know that all kinds of things could go wrong the minute you give something to humans. It's like, look what we did with the earth. God gave us the earth. And look what we've done in terms of pollution and in terms of wars, the way we treat each other. So the likelihood is that people were going to wreck the Torah. And how does it help for Moses effectively to say, yes, well, that's the point. Have a look. The Torah is addressed to us fallible humans. But maybe the angels were on the mark. Let's let's look back over the course of the last few thousand years of history. Uh, it looks like their skepticism was possibly well placed. So that's the first question. We're going to focus on two things in our conversation today. That's the first question. I'm just curious to hear what you think about that. Um, if the angels might have been right in their argument, now that we have the benefit of hindsight. And then, independently of that, we're going to talk about what was the real deeper meaning behind their argument. Because needless to say, the angels should have accepted that God knows what he's doing and they should never have protested. If they did protest, there must have been a really good reason to do so. Most likely a reason that would have been supported by the Torah. Otherwise, they'd be dead in the water. What was the argument? And and in fact, what was the response that Moses gave them? So there's, there's quite a lot to discuss over here. And it's it's a fascinating and somewhat deep concept, which I, I hope that you'll find interesting. So what is your perspective? Do you think the angels might have had a point when they said, don't give the Torah to the humans? What do you say? 34519. Telegram is 0618951019. And of course, find us on social media. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Let's talk about something more meaningful than that. Just before we do, interesting question over here from Carol on um, Telegram, even though it's not exactly on the topic. But Carol's question is, is it true that after the night that Ruth and Boaz were intimate, he died and she became pregnant? Yes, there is definitely, I've definitely encountered that commentary somewhere along the way. I don't recall offhand what the source was. We do know that Boaz was an older man at that point in time. It's an interesting story, Ruth and Boaz. Very interesting story. Deserves a lot of attention. I think people, unfortunately, don't really look in deeply enough to what that story is all about. Anyhow, that's not our story today. Our story is the question about the angels who had a huge protest against the Jewish people getting the Torah. They did not feel that humans have the capacity to be able to handle the Torah. My question is, maybe they had a point. Is that possible? Now, I love it when people do this. This is a very Jewish response. This is, I don't know how to say this. Oh, eat <laughs> That's how you say it on Twitter. Says they, they had a point, the angels, so did Moses, which just reinforces how Torah is timeless and always relevant. Not sure. Not sure I get that. Did they have a point or did Moses have the point? It's not 
both, surely. One of them wins. <laughs> the Torah gets given to the human beings after all. Not 100% sure about that. Here's Jeanette also on Twitter who says, no, the angels were wrong because God's guidance is needed now more than ever. Okay, so that's implying, of course, that because we're fallible, that's why we need the Torah because we have weaknesses and we can land up in all kinds of trouble and we need God's guidance okay I hear that and I think many people would probably resonate with that as well if you have a thought on whether or not the angels had a point when they said don't give the Torah to people because they're just going to destroy it then go ahead please and share that with us because it is definitely an interesting conversation. And it's a conversation that opens up various other conversations as well. A number of people have just sent straight yes and no, which is great, but it doesn't really start conversation or, or keep the conversation going. It's just yes or no. Okay, very nice. But I, I'd prefer if you could explain how, how we know um, that it was yes or no. Why? Why yes or no? Here is an absolutely unpronounceable name on Twitter who says, if you read the rest of the passage in the Talmud, then you would see clearly that the response of Moses is that the Torah was for exactly the type of creature that we are, human and flawed. If God had wanted the angels, he would have made us all into angels. And I do agree with that. That is absolutely true doesn't yet explain why. So you're right. You're right. It definitely seems that God intended for the Torah to be given specifically to people who have tremendous weaknesses. question is why? What's the value in that? What is, so to speak, what does he get to gain from it? Now, in order to answer that question, I'd like to introduce you to a very intriguing area of Jewish law. And according to quite a number of the commentators on the, on the Talmud, it's because of this particular area in Jewish law that the angels complained in the first place. Okay, so listen to this. It's called the law of the neighbor. In Aramaic, it's called dinner de barometer. So basically what it means is like this. You have to remember, of course, that all those centuries ago, life was built around agriculture. And if a person had a farm, that was their wealth. So... The Torah has a very intriguing law. Let's say that there's a guy, as we always do in the Gomorrah, we always call the guys Ruvain and Shimon, okay? So there's a guy called Ruvain, and he owns a field. His neighbor is Shimon, and Shimon's field adjoins Ruvain's field, okay? Got it? So there's two people that got fields right next to each other. Ruvain now wants to sell his field for whatever reason. Maybe he wants to downsize, wants to retire, wants to move to another part of the country, wants to give up farming. I don't know. But he decides that he wants to sell his field. According to Jewish law, Ruvain has a responsibility to give Shimon first right of refusal to buy his field. And the reason is very simple, logical, and moral. Judaism wants people to behave in a way that is considerate of other people. Judaism wants us to always think about what would benefit the next person, especially if it's not going to come at any cost to us. So Ruben's going to sell his field. It's not like he's not going to sell it. He is going to sell his field, and he is going to get his price. Yet at the same time, the Torah says he should look for the well-being of his neighbor, Shimon, because let's just say Shimon wants to expand his wealth and he'd love to have a larger farm. Now, he's got two choices. Either he finds a field somewhere else, at a distance from his existing field, which would work, 
but it would come with tremendous inconvenience. He'd have to have double the security, move his workers and his equipment back and forth from the one farm to the other. He'd have to have two storage facilities or transportation from the one to the other. So it'd be highly inconvenient for him. Now, if Shimon has the opportunity to buy Ruvain's field, that's great because it's right next door. Now he can expand his farming operation and by extension he could expand his wealth in a very easy way. So the Torah says we expect Ruvain to give him that opportunity. If Shimon doesn't want the field, he doesn't want the field. Not only that, let's say that Ruvain did not honor this principle and he decided that he's actually going to sell the field to somebody else, which he does. Shimon can take him to court. Shimon can have that purchaser removed from the field, have his money reimbursed, and then he could still go to Ruvain and buy the field because it's that important to consider the, the care or the concern for the next person. Okay, so the principle is whoever is closest to the field should be given the first right of refusal when the field goes onto the market. Now, the angels say, look, Torah ultimately is in the spiritual dimension. That's where it is. That's where it's been for all of these years. We're the neighbors. We live in the spiritual dimension. So we should have the first right of refusal. Before you go offering the Torah to anybody else, you should first offer it to us. Now that changes the story considerably. It's no longer just simply a story about the angels saying, well, the humans can't be trusted. It's the angels saying we actually have the rights to the Torah legally. Now what? Okay? So that's something to think about. I'd love to hear your thought if you have one. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. And we're talking today about the upcoming holiday of Shavuos, Shavuot. If you'd like to join the conversation, you can do so at any time. Just use social media, Twitter, Facebook, otherwise uh, Telegram, 061-895-1019 or the SMS line 34519. Started off with a conversation, or I should say we started the conversation with me asking a question. The Talmud tells us that the angels were frustrated at the thought that the Torah should be given to the Jewish people, and they protested against giving the Torah to humans. And Moses had to push back and defend himself. And it's an interesting question, and I asked people what they thought about it, and we've had some very interesting responses. Uh, here's somebody else on Twitter who says, the uh, Baal Shem Tov said that a simple wagon driver kissing the fringes of his prayer shawl is dearer to the ruler of the universe than the praise of the angel Michael. In other words, that the angels have nothing on us, which I completely agree and resonate with. But we wanted to take this a level deeper and try and understand where were the angels coming from when they argued that the Torah should be given to them. So uh, just before that song, and it is nice to have music again, I mentioned to you that there is a Jewish law. And the Jewish law is that if you have two neighbors and the one wants to sell his field, he has to prioritize the neighbor, allowing the opportunity because he's closest. He should have first rights of refusal. He should be allowed to buy this field. Using the same logic, the angels turn around to God and they say, well, we're the neighbors of the Torah. We've lived in the same precinct for all of these years. We've lived up here in heaven. That's where the Torah has been. We're the neighbors. We deserve the first opportunity to get the Torah. Why on earth are you giving it to the, to the, to the humans? They're, they're foreigners. They're, they're from far away. 
not to say that there was xenophobia or anything up there in heaven, but they felt that they had a legal leg to stand on. And by the way, if anybody knows the description of angels, you'll appreciate the expression legal leg to stand on when you're talking about angels. (laughs) Anyway, so they felt that they deserve it. They should be getting the Torah. They are the neighbors. And Moshe responds to them and he says, ah, 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 ah. no, it's not how it's going to work. So the commentators give us a whole lot of different possibilities as to why it is that Moshe was able to debunk their argument. Now, we're not going to go through all of them because this is not a full-blown shiur. It's just a little bit of insight. However, there are some very interesting perspectives here. Here's one. One perspective is that at the end of the day, you can understand the logic of saying, look, there is a field next door to my field. It is the most practical place for me to expand my field. Please don't sell it to somebody else. Sell it to me. We can understand that. But that law would never apply to something that is not fixed property, right? You can't say that watch that's being sold in the shop that is on my street because I'm the closest person to it, I should be the first person allowed to buy it? Nah. You can buy a watch anywhere. It's got nothing to do with proximity. A movable item is not defined legally by its location. So you could say the same thing, surely, with a Torah, according to some of the commentators. The Torah is not a fixed property. It's a movable item. It so happens that it was being stored in the heavens for a period of time. But fundamentally... It doesn't have to belong to the heavens. It's not attached to a location. So the argument that the angels put forward to say, we're the neighbors, we deserve to get it, we could actually chuck that out quite easily. Or here's another perspective, very interesting perspective, that when it comes to transactions, the various kinds of transactions, one of the transaction types, obviously, is to, to give somebody a gift. Now, if there's a sale happening between myself and somebody else, you could apply certain legal objections to that sale. You say, whoa, hang on a second. It's not fair to sell it to this person. There's a legal reason to sell it to that person. They will have to weigh it up and say, you know what? Perhaps you have a point. If I want to give a present, nobody can dictate to me from a legal perspective who I can and can't give a present to. So the angels argue to God and they say, it's not right. You don't give the Torah to the Jewish people because if you're selling it, you'd rather sell it to us, we're the neighbors. We're closer. We've lived in the space right next door to the Torah all of this time. Rather give it to us first. But the truth is we're going to call this holiday the holiday of the gift of the Torah. Matan Torah saying where God gave us the Torah. Nobody can dictate to God who he should or shouldn't give it to. So there are two strong arguments against the suggestion that we have to have the Torah because it was given or because it lives in our environment. Okay, maybe sounding a little bit technical, but you'll see where I'm going with this in just a moment's time. If you have a specific point, insight or question on that, go ahead. By all means, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, on, on this conversation because it is an interesting one. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Okay, so we've got this interesting conversation that apparently happened between Moses and the angels at the time of the giving of the Torah. The angels were not impressed that Hashem wanted the Torah to go all the way to the human realm. 
and they wanted to keep it up there in heaven, sounds at face value, that it's because they felt that we were flawed, couldn't be trusted. Truth is, once you look at the commentaries, they had a very elaborate legal argument to support their contention. Effectively, what they said is that the Torah dictates that if somebody is a neighbor to a property that's about to be sold, they should be offered the property first. Likewise, we're saying, say the angels, we're the neighbors to the Torah. We should have been offered the Torah first. Now, there are many, many commentators back and forth. I've quoted two of them for you. There are many others to explain how Moshe would have rebutted their argument. But here, let's cut straight to the chase. Let's get to the, the real depth and meaning behind this conversation. See, Jewish law says that if you have a toss-up between somebody who would like to expand their farm, which is obviously important because they need to be able to put food on the table and they want to expand their wealth. And in those days, wealth was agriculturally based. So if your farm is bigger, you can have more income. So if that's the consideration on the one side, so the neighbor says, I, I need that farm because I want to make my farm bigger so I can have more money. And another person comes along and says, listen, I need to buy land because I don't have a place to build a house. And I'd like to build a house, human settlement. So the law is the consideration of human settlement overrides the consideration of wealth. In plain English, so you've got three people now. You've got this guy, Ruvain, who wants to sell his field. You've got his neighbor, Shimon, who's also a farmer. And would love to have that field because then he's going to be able to have this large farm and generate a lot more income. But there's another fellow called Levi who comes to Ruben and says, I hear that you're selling your field and I really need a piece of land because I need to build a house. We say Levi takes precedence because you, you have to ensure that a person has the space to build their house. Now, if we want to understand what the Torah is all about, it actually lies in that part of the story. The Torah is about a house. It's not a field. It's not something to build wealth or to put it slightly differently. We don't have the Torah so that it can add inspiration to our lives or so that it could create opportunities for us to become wise people or knowledgeable people. We don't have the Torah so that we'd have the most brilliant guidebook on how to live life in the best way possible. All of those things are true. None of those things is the reason with a capital R for the giving of the Torah. If we really want to understand why we have a Torah, it's not to be another religion, another theology, ideology, philosophy. The reason we have the Torah is because God wants a home. Okay, so the two possible realities there's the reality of a field, a place of productivity where you invest and you see returns on your investment and it's great for the person who invested. And then you have a home. And a home is such a big deal that the sages tell us in the Talmud that a person who does not have a home is not even able to live as a fully-fledged person. That's how important it is to have a home. Not to have shelter. Shelter is not necessarily a home. That's what you'll find if you take people and you put them into a shelter. Let's say, God forbid, there was a devastating event, a flood, a natural disaster, an earthquake, or a person was homeless, and you put them into a shelter. 
it's not good enough just to have a space where you're protected from the elements and where you have a bed to sleep at night. You'll find that people want to personalize it. It has to be home. And the unique thing about being home is that when you're home, you can actually be yourself. So if you think about it, I don't know where you are right now as you're listening to this. You might be in the car. And because you're in the car, I don't know, you may have people in the car. Maybe you're doing lift scheming, doing a carpool. So you've got other people's children in your car. You've got to be careful now how you behave, not to swear at the person who cuts you off in the traffic, right? You've got to be careful. Let's say you're listening right now in your office. You've got a bit of a gap between clients, you, you, whatever. You've you got some time. In the office, you have to behave in a particular way. There's a protocol of how we behave in the business environment, how we dress, how we talk, how we uh, address people, what kind of product we offer, etc. They're very serious protocols. When we're in a social setting, there are other protocols that we have to adhere to. There's a way that we talk, there's a way that we, uh, there's personal space, etc. In the gym, there's another protocol. And so it goes. Life outside of our homes is not purely free. We have to conform. We have to behave in a very specific way. The greatness of coming home is, ah, I'm home. Home is where I could let my hair down. Home is where I could be me. Home is where I don't have to stand on ceremony. Metaphorically, the world that we live in, not only the physical world, the entire the entire spectrum of creation, starting from the most sublime and spiritual all the way down to here on earth. There are protocols, and God has chosen to follow those protocols. There's a way to behave in the way he engages with the angels. There's a different protocol for how he chooses to behave when he engages with humans. It's a different protocol that he uses when he engages with things that are less developed, the inanimate world, etc. So, you wouldn't be able to say that God is at home. In other words, you wouldn't be able to say that God can just be himself. Now, we know what would happen to us if God would just so-called be himself without any protocol of management, uh, of how much energy or how much of himself he shares with us. It would blow us away. It would incinerate us. It would obliterate us. Even at the time of the giving of the Torah at Sinai, where Hashem appeared not in his fullest expression, but just this momentary glimpse at his essence sent everybody flying and literally people died from the exposure. So we have to find a way to be able to facilitate God having a home in this world. A home meaning where there won't be all these limiting protocols, but God could actually just be himself, so to speak, reveal himself in the reality not only of the physical world but right across all the realms to the angels and beyond the angels just to so to speak be himself without any restraint without any restriction so if you've got this toss-up between the angels who just they just want to have more benefit from the Torah it's like having a field you know you have more wealth more inspiration more learning more insight on the one hand then you've got the opportunity to give the Torah to the humans on earth, which will create an opportunity to make Hashem's home, in other words, a place of unfettered divine experience, we're going to prioritize where the home is going to go. Now, of course, that leaves you a question. What? We're going to make Hashem's home? How? Do you think we could do a better job than the angels? Back to square one. Perhaps the angels were right. Perhaps they could have done a better job than us. Feels like we've gone full circle over here. What would the answer to that be? 
perhaps you haven't answered, you could share it on social media or 34519 on SMS. Otherwise, trusty telegram line 061-895-1019. This is Fresh Thinking with Rabbi Ari Shishla. Interesting comments here from Shonel. Shonil says, The point is that Hashem never loses. He also seems to like intricate stories. <laughs> I would have just hit the reset button. That's why I'm not Hashem. Yeah, fair enough. I think most of us would probably do something that would be different to how God would do it. So let's wrap this up. The argument of the angels is, don't give the Torah to the human beings. Why? Because... Well, if your objective is to build a house, a home for God, to create an environment where God could be absolutely revealed, heaven surely is the best place. Angels surely are the best individuals to do so. And God says, well, that's exactly wrong. Actually, Moshe says, that's exactly wrong. Because one of the questions that Moshe poses to them, he says, do you have parents? One of the Ten Commandments is that you should honor your parents. Do you have parents? And it's a slam dunk argument because effectively what he says to the angels is, you know what it means that you don't have parents? It means you don't have the capacity to create something new. Angels do not procreate. You don't have the capacity to create something new. You're beautiful in your spirituality. You're impotent in the ability to generate something fresh. That's the greatness of humans. The fact that we can make mistakes is directly linked to the fact that we can also make things, innovate, create, invent. And most importantly, we can create something that can continue to create. So we give birth to a child who gives birth to a child. That implies that embedded inside our being is the capacity for an infinite power, which means we're directly linked to God. Angels are products made by God. We are directly linked to God. That's what gives us the opportunity to take even the most unlikely environment, planet Earth, with all of its tremendous, tremendous drawbacks, limited space, limited resources, the boundaries of time. And that's not going to stop us. That's our greatness. Our own weakness is not going to stop us. That's our greatness. If the angels had been presented with our weakness, they would never be able to create a home for God. And that's our greatness. We could have all these mega challenges in our spiritual development. And yet, in spite of those challenges, fulfill exactly what God expects of creation. And there's an interesting physics principle that is very often quoted in Jewish mysticism, and that is if you want to lift a heavy load, you've got to put the leverage right at the bottom, because if you lift something from the bottom, you'll lift everything. And in the same way, God wanted to leverage us who live right at the bottom of the entire created reality and use us as the catalyst to lift not only our reality, but the reality of the angels and beyond. The giving of the Torah to the humans was a way to transform the whole of creation to be a home for God, a place where the divine is revealed. You and I do that every time we do a mitzvah. I hope that you'll have a wonderful Shabbos. I want to wish you also a meaningful Yontav. 
And please remember, Sunday morning, first day of the holiday of Shavuos, to be at shul, to be able to hear the Ten Commandments, which is the reliving of the experience of the giving of the Torah, the invitation and opportunity to make reality into God's home. Have a wonderful Shabbos. Stay safe and stay sane.